So I knew a brother in ministry, and, uh, and we're just going to call this brother Pastor Joe. We'll change the names to uh, protect the innocent, if you will. And I knew, this, I knew this fella, Pastor Joe, and the thing about Pastor Joe was he was always Pastor Joe, or sometimes he was pastor. But he was never just Joe. To the people in his church, it was always Pastor or Pastor Joe. To the elders at his church, it was always Pastor or Pastor Joe. To the other staff at his church, who were supposed to be a team that did ministry together, he was Pastor or Pastor Joe. But he was never just Joe. And I remember thinking about how awful that was. You, you might not, it might not register with you as being awful, but, but I remember thinking how awful that was because I knew inevitably there was going to come a day when Pastor Joe was no longer a pastor. He was just Joe. And I thought, what happens to Pastor Joe on that day when he's just Joe and he no longer has Pastor to help shape his identity. How will he function when he is just Joe? And really, this is a pretty common situation. I mean, maybe not with regards to the title pastor, but it's a pretty common situation for people in general where we have things that give us our identity. And none of those things are sure and guaranteed and fixed. So for example, maybe your identity has really been determined by being a great husband. I am a husband. I am committed to my wife. I try to pursue my wife. I try to be a leader in my home. I am a great husband. Or maybe I'm a great wife. I, I want to be a supporter of my husband, a server of my husband, and just really just put wind in his sails, and, and I realize the, the enormous potential and influence I have as a wife, and so, man, I really just find great energy from being a wife, and, and that's all well and good, but what happens when your spouse dies? Or what if your spouse is unfaithful to you and your spouse leaves? What happens when you are no longer a husband or a wife? Can you still function apart from that identity? Or maybe it's mom or dad. I, I want to give my kids the best life possible. I never want my kids to feel like I wasn't in their corner, like I wasn't there on the sidelines cheering for them. And so I'm involved in everything that my kids do. And, and I want to make sure my kids can do everything they want to do. And I want to be deeply, deeply involved in the life of my children. But what happens if your child dies? Or maybe they don't die. Maybe they grow up and they get married and they start a family and your role as a parent is just significantly diminished and you find out that you're actually not as needed as you once were because what is supposed to happen, people grow up and they become able-bodied, has happened. But that was your identity. What, what happens then? Maybe it's, maybe it's your role as a business person. 
as a professional. Or maybe it's your job. And this really gives shape to your life. And it gives you a sense of identity. But what happens if you lose that job? What happens if you lose that job and can't get another job? What happens if you just retire and no longer need to work for an income, but you find that you need to work for identity? Or maybe it's abilities and hobbies. Maybe you're a hunter, but what happens when you can no longer hunt? Or maybe you're a runner, but what happens when you can no longer run? Or, or whatever it is. There are all kinds of things that we knowingly or unknowingly root our identity in. And almost all of these earthly things will someday come to an end. Almost all of them will someday come to an end. Now, there are a few exceptions. Everyone in this room is a man or a woman. Biologically, you are a man or a woman, and you will be a man or a woman in eternity. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on a body. He who is fully God became fully man and forever will be fully God and fully man. He was raised bodily from the dead. He was recognized by those after his resurrection as a man. He ascended into heaven and was proclaimed by the apostles in Acts chapter 4 as the man Jesus Christ. So you are biologically a man or a woman and for all eternity you will be a man or a woman. Likewise, all of us have an ethnicity and a language group. There are various language groups and people groups. And in Revelation chapter 7, we're told that there will be people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue around the throne praising God. The, the, new, the new earth and the resurrected body will not do away with our ethnic particulars. And so we will forever be ethnically who we are. But Jesus does say that resurrected people will neither be married nor given in marriage. So there won't be any husbands and wives in eternity, even though Margaret says we're secretly going to be husbands and wives. But there are a lot of earthly things that will be no more, things that people have tied their identity to that will no longer exist. So what then should our identity be based on it should be based on things that will not change in this lifetime and it should be based on things that will remain in the life to come and for the Christian our identity is primarily determined by who God is and what he has done for us in Christ so for today and the next three weeks we want to look at a few of the identities that flow from who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And we could probably come up with a, a list of multiple, a long list of identities. But for our purposes here, we're going to look at four primary identities that flow from the gospel. And the first of those identities that we're going to look at today is family. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 as we read verses 18 through 19 and consider identities that belong to the Christian that flow from the gospel that will not change in this life and that will remain in the life to come. Ephesians chapter 2, 
verse 18 reads, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen? Amen. So in verse 18, we see that by the Holy Spirit, through Christ, we have access to God as Father. Now this is huge because God is creator. God is the maker of everything and everyone. And God is also the sustainer, the reason why the earth continues to spin on its axis at just the right angle so that it neither burns up or freezes is because God is the one who is actively keeping it going. And God is the ruler. Jesus can say that not a sparrow will fall from the sky apart from the will of his Father, which tells us that God is the sovereign ruler. To use a sports term, he is the general manager of the universe. Everything that is going on in the universe crosses God's desk. And God is also the judge. God has objectively declared that some things are good and some things are evil and that he will reward the good and he will punish the evil and he will by no means clear the guilty. And God will make sure that in the end that right prevails and wrong is penalized. He is creator, he is sustainer, he is ruler, he is judge, and this is true for everyone, everywhere, regardless of what they believe, what they do, how they live. There is nothing about any individual that negates these four truths. God is creator, God is sustainer, God is ruler, God is judge. But verse 18 presents us with an incredible truth that by the Holy Spirit, through Christ, we who all, all stand under a God who is creator, sustainer, ruler, and judge now have the opportunity. We have access to approach this one and same God as Father in a personal love relationship. And this statement is even more incredible when you consider the context of Ephesians chapter 2, when it says we both, who's it talking about? It's talking about the recipients of this letter. And they are all Christians, but they are ethnically diverse. There are Jews and there are non-Jews or Gentiles. But the reason that it's so exceptional that they are ethnically diverse from representing these two camps is because the Jews trace their ancestry back to Abraham. And the Bible narrative tells us that out of all the different language groups and people groups on the face of the earth, that God chose one man, Abraham, 
and he said, I'm making a special promised relationship with you, and I'm going to be your God, and you and your people are going to be my people, and I am going to bless you to the extent that everyone who blesses you, they'll be blessed, and anyone who curses you, they'll be cursed, because I am for you. And Abraham had a son named Isaac, and he received likewise the similar promise and then Isaac had a son named Jacob who also inherited the promise and Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel who wound up in slavery in the land of Egypt and God sent his servant Moses to lead his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt and in Deuteronomy chapter 7 God says to the people of Israel is there any other nation who has experienced this? Is there any other God who has taken any other people group who were enslaved out of such a mighty nation as I have done for you? Is there any other nation that I have picked for myself? I have picked you and you alone. I care especially for you, distinct from everyone else. You are my People. And it's not because you're greater in number, and it's not because you're mightier or stronger. It's because I have chosen to set my love on you. And then in Acts chapter 17, Paul's preaching, and he says, For a long, 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 long time, God has let all the nations go their own way, which is just another way of saying, God did not care for you in the same loving way that he cared for his people, Israel. It's like if the neighbor kids come over, I'm going to give them a popsicle if I give our kids a popsicle. But when they're done playing, I'm going to tell the neighbor kids, go home. I'm not bathing you. I'm not feeding you. I'm not taking care of you. You have a house and a family. You go home. You are not my children. No, I don't say it like that. But the point is, I relate differently to my children. God said, I am relating differently to these people. But something changes then. Christ comes to the Jews as a Jew among the Jews and says, I'm not just giving my life for the Jews. I'm giving my life for whosoever would believe on me so that they might not perish but have eternal life. Now, through Christ, it makes no matter what ethnicity you are or what your past is, if you worshiped the one true God, if you grew up in church, or if you worshiped pagan idols, if you were a law follower or a law breaker, it makes no matter because in Christ, all can now have access by one spirit to God, our creator, sustainer, ruler, and judge as father. Before the cross, the ground is very flat, and we all stand equally condemned and equally invited to receive Christ. Through Jesus, anyone can become a child of God regardless of family, race, politics, past. It makes no difference it is not based on meeting the standard because we can't meet the standard. 
But Jesus did meet the standard. And so by the Spirit, we approach God as Father, as loving, as dear, as welcoming, as accepting through Christ. But it's worth mentioning, though, while anyone can become a son or daughter of God, only Jesus is unique, one-of-a-kind, same-as-God, Son of God, a.k.a. the only begotten of the Father. So anyone can become a child of God, but no one is an only child because Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. God already had a family. Through Christ, we're adopted into it. In Christ, though, because of the gospel, because Jesus came in the flesh because he lived a perfect life fulfilling God's law, because of his death as a substitute on the cross, because of his resurrection from the dead, through repentance, turning away from all else toward him and faith in him, we have access to God as Father, we become his beloved children, and we are part of or members of the household or family of God. This makes family one of the primary or most basic identities then for the person who is trusting in Christ as their Savior, both saving us from sin and from God's judgment, and as their King, the ruler, the master, the loving Lord of their life. So everyone then who has put their trust in Christ can wake up every day and look in the mirror and shaven or unshaven, Makeup or no makeup, halitosis or not, acne or not, we can look in the mirror and we can say, I am a child of a father who is God. I am joined to innumerable brothers and sisters, both the world over and in heaven, and this will never change. Unless we deny the faith, walk away from Christ, and die without repentance, God will always be our Father, will always be a part of the family, and other Christians will always be our brothers and sisters. This is our primary identity as Christians. We are family. What then are the implications of this for our lives? I think there are at least five implications. The first of those implications is that we're a part of something bigger. Every one of us wakes up every morning, and if we call ourselves a Christian, we know that we're part of the family of God, that we are family, and so that means that every one of us is a part of something bigger. We have a corporate identity, not simply an individual identity. New Testament scholar Timothy Gombas was talking about the way that we typically read the Bible. The way that we read books like Ephesians or Philippians or Galatians, uh, all of the the pastoral letters, epistles. And these letters were written, the majority of them were written to churches. They were written to congregations. And likewise, they would have been read in a group setting. They wouldn't have been passed along to individuals. They would have been read when everyone was all together. And Gombas writes... Uh, You can read it on the screen. American evangelical Christian identity is completely shaped by individualism for a variety of really fascinating historical and cultural reasons. 
I've discovered that it's almost impossible to pull people out of the mindset that considers the Bible as God's love letter to me. And so what Gamas is talking about here is the fact that we tend to think as Christians in terms of what is God saying to me, or we talk about uh, God loving me and Jesus dying for me, uh, and what does God want for me or from me. And that's not wrong. It's just that it's not complete. God does love me. Jesus did die for me. And because of that, I'm in God's family. So now we can ask, what's God saying to me? And what's God saying to us? Now we can ask, what does God want me to do? And how does God want us to do this together? Thinking of family as one of our primary identities will keep us from thinking about our faith in purely individualistic ways. So that's the first implication. But the second implication of family being our primary identity is that we have a place where we belong. No matter what happens in the world, we have a people. I can go anywhere in the world We can go anywhere in the world. And wherever the good news of forgiveness of sin and peace with God through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is preached and believed, we have a place. We have a place where we belong simply because we believe that message too. It doesn't matter if we're American. It doesn't matter if we're middle class. It doesn't matter how we vote. It doesn't matter how old we are. If our primary identity is family, we can go anywhere in the world where the gospel is preached and believed and we have a place there. God has made those people our people. The third implication is that God has chosen our family for us. Now, I would venture to say that none of us in the room today had much to say about who our parents were going to be, or who our siblings would be. Someone else made that decision for us. And ultimately, the person making that decision was God. And in a similar way, God has chosen our spiritual family for us as well. You see, we can't make anyone a Christian or decide for someone else for them to follow Christ. We couldn't even come to Christ on our own if God didn't first give us new hearts that could respond to his love and mercy. So we could visit every church in a community and we could pick one that we thought had the strongest doctrine, the healthiest leadership, the best music, the greatest ministries and outreach to the community. But the decision on who winds up in that church is ultimately the Lord's decision. That means people are at the church as they are because of God's placement. And because of God, they're part of the family of God. That means anyone who makes a credible profession of faith in Christ is our family, chosen by God himself. Which means there's a lot of things that we might struggle with relationally that is just irrelevant. Because God chose our natural family for us. 
And God chooses our spiritual family for us also. Another implication is that we need never be hard up for friends. If family in Christ is our primary identity, we need never be hard up for friends. Numerous mental health professionals have claimed that many, many people in America are experiencing a loneliness epidemic. In the face of all the technological advancements that are happening in the world around us, people are simultaneously more connected and yet less connected than they've ever been in history. And there's all kinds of reasons for the lack of deep, meaningful friendships in people's lives. But the key, the one essential key to having a friendship, the essential quality, is having something in common with something else. It could be a shared cause, a shared interest, a shared experience, a particular preference that you have in common. But that shared thing is the key to opening the door to deep and meaningful friendships. And I remember reading about this in a book one time, and it was from a Christian author, and they didn't give this as an illustration, but for some reason this instantly just popped to mind. If you've ever read the story of the crucifixion, you'll know that Jesus, when he was arrested in the garden, he made several stops on his way to the cross. And one of those stops was the, the uh, providential ruler, for the Jews, and that the, the provincial ruler, I should say, and that was King Herod. He was the Jewish figurehead. And he appeared before Jesus, and he could find nothing in Jesus. And so continuing to work the system, he sent him on to the Roman provincial ruler, who was Pontius Pilate. And the text says that that very day they became friends, though previously they had had enmity. They had been at enmity. They, they had not been friends. They did not get along. But now all of a sudden they were friends. What were they friends over? They were friends over their shared mockery and rejection of Jesus. They had something now that brought them together. You see, that's the key to every good friendship. There's one thing that is shared. Born-again Christians have more reasons than anyone on the face of the planet to have deep friendships and meaningful relationships. That's not to say that we still don't have to take initiative. It's not to say that we don't have to put forth effort to talk to people. It's not to say that we don't need to prioritize and make time for individuals, but if the only thing that we have that we can talk about with someone else is faith in Christ, following him, how it's going for us, how it's going for them in that, as long as we have that and we have access to other born-again Christians, if we embrace family as our primary identity, we have access to and potential for countless, very deep and meaningful friendships because of Christ. The fifth implication of viewing family as our primary identity because we are Christians is that we have a responsibility. 
When I was a single man and going somewhere, I only had one person to be concerned about getting out the door. As a married man, I now had to stop and ask myself, does she need any help? Which was a lesson that was very, very slowly learned and not perfectly executed even today. But as the father of seven, I have learned that getting out the door involves a lot more for a family than it did a single man or even a married couple. And as our oldest children have grown and matured, we've communicated to them that they also have a responsibility to lean in and help out when we're all getting ready to go somewhere. And do you know why that is? Why they have a responsibility? It's because they're part of the family. And in our family, everyone has to pitch in to help. And it's no different in God's family. If we're a part of the family, we have a responsibility not to think only of ourselves, but to think about the needs of others in the family. You could even stick with the analogy and say we have a responsibility to help others in the family get ready. Get ready for what? Get ready for where we're going, right? It could be someone who's in need of encouragement. It could be someone who needs spiritual or physical care. It could be someone who's just desperately in need of fellowship and relationship. Now, in every church, we have a responsibility. In every church, there will be people who stand aloof and who don't lean in and who make it hard for themselves to be cared for. But if we're family and if they're our family, we have a responsibility to love them and to reach out to them. And Lord willing, they'll receive care and they'll turn around and they'll do the same for someone else in the family. Hopefully, they'll grow up and be able to help others more as well because they see their identity in Christ as family and realize that in the family, we all have to pitch in to help everyone get ready. Now, for some of us, this, this picture, this word, family, is going to be super helpful. We hear that in Christ, we're family. Family is one of our primary identities. And we're going to say, oh man, that helps me connect with my faith and with other believers so well because I, I understand family. I understand com communication and closeness and intimacy and helping one another and being together. That, that is what family has been for me. So that's super helpful. I feel like that just really gives me a clear picture of how to follow Christ because of my experience with my natural family. And for others, that is not a very helpful picture because family is hard. Uh, that doesn't really help me because my family doesn't communicate. My family's distant. My family doesn't feel warm. My family doesn't feel supportive. Uh, you wouldn't look to anyone in my family if you needed help. Other people fall somewhere different when it comes to what to make of that word. And so if that word is helpful for you, you hear family and you've had a very rich experience of an earthly family, then praise God for that. What an evidence of God's 
grace and kindness toward your earthly family. Praise God for it and press on. Use it as, as a helpful tool and pursue that with your spiritual family, who you will be connected to for all eternity. But if that's not helpful for you, realize that God's grace means there's always hope. That the story of your earthly family is not finished being written. As long as people have breath in their lungs because of God's grace, there is always hope. But also know that our spiritual bonds supersede our earthly ties. ties. So when Jesus was teaching and his brothers thought he was crazy and they talked his mom into thinking maybe he wasn't completely healthy either and they all went to collect Jesus to bring him home so he could come to his senses. And someone said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside. They're waiting for you. Jesus said, who is my mother and who is my brother and sisters? Whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brother and my sisters. This is the same Jesus who on the cross made arrangements for his mother to be cared for. He didn't reject his earthly family. But yet at the same time, he acknowledged that spiritual bonds supersede earthly ties. So if family hasn't been, been helpful for you, you are not limited from flourishing in the family of God because of unfulfilled desires, hopes, or dreams for your earthly family. That, that does not need to be an impediment for deep, meaningful family in the body of Christ. The Bible tells us even the sparrow finds a home at the Lord's altar. People who have never known family find a deep home in Christ. Church, can you imagine what it would be like if we got a hold of this? If we understood, I am who I am by the grace of God. I do not come to God as a good person. I come to God by his grace as a sinner in need of mercy. But because of that, I have received mercy, and I've been accepted, I've been welcomed, I've been adopted into the family of God. I am a part of a family. We are family. Can you imagine what it would be like if we got a hold of this and, and we embraced it and we lived this identity out together? If we thought of ourselves as family and not just a bunch of people who show up in a room together on a Sunday morning or a bunch of people who have made a commitment to show up regularly. If we thought of ourselves as family, if we thought of ourselves with reference to the other Christians in this room, I am a Christian who's connected to James Rhodes. And I am a Christian who's connected to Chloe Howard. And I am a Christian who is connected to Linda Holland. Who am I? I am a Christian who is connected to Christianacus. If we thought of ourselves with reference to the other Christians in this room and elsewhere, if, if we were a place where everyone who calls on Jesus has a place, if we were a group where friendships flourished 
Not because we like the same sports or the same hobbies or had the same interests, but because we shared Christ. If we were a community where everyone jumped in to help and bear burdens and serve and give and care for one another because we're all a part of the same family. Can you imagine what that would look like just in our lives? Can you imagine what it would look like to the community? Can you imagine what it would look like to the the quarter of the women who showed up at the study on Thursday night? This is so different than anything I've ever experienced at church and maybe than anything I've even experienced among family. Can you imagine how God would use that love for one another so that the world would know we are his disciples? This is who God has called us to be in Christ. It's who we are. Let's live that out together. Now maybe there's someone here today who you've not surrendered your life to Christ you maybe would have called yourself a Christian at some point, but, but really, you've never come to God as a sinner in need of his mercy and seen Jesus Christ as your only hope as a drowning man would a life preserver in the middle of the ocean. And if that's you, then the bad news is you are an outsider to the family of God. You are an outsider to the promises of God. But the good news... And that's what the gospel means is good news. The good news is that God is making outsiders insiders by the Spirit through Jesus. And so today, if you see your need and believe that Jesus' offer is desirable, I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to have eternal life in Jesus. I want to be a part of the family of God. The good news is that you can have that. You can call on Jesus, not by raising your hand or walking this aisle or taking the Lord's Supper, not even by getting baptized. And all of those things may be involved, some of those things at least, but simply where you're at in your heart of hearts, saying, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that when he died on the cross, he died for my sins too. I believe that he came back to life and he's coming back again. I want to be a part of the family of God. God, be my father, make me yours, and God will save you. And then come talk to myself or someone who's been on the platform this morning, and we would love to talk with you more about that. But right now, let's pray as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you so much that the bad news is we're strangers and aliens. We're born into this world dead in sin, separated from you without hope. And without you. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to reconcile us to you. Through faith, we can be joined to Christ by the Spirit so that where he is, we also will be. So that we can know you as Father. So that we can know one another as brother and sister And we can share the deepest community because it's rooted in Jesus and held together in Jesus. Father, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, those of us who have said, I believe that Jesus died for me, 
I believe that Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my right standing before God. I pray, Father, that you would help us to realize where you have brought us from and what you have brought us out of and what you have made available to us. Who you are making us to be, Lord. And that you'd help us to see our place in Christ as part of the family of God. We thank you so much for your beautiful work of redemption. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.